I'll invite you at this point in our service to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Isaiah. We'll turn to Isaiah 41. We'll be looking at just the first 20 verses of Isaiah 41. We'll read this under the heading of God of History. God of History. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are a servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. For I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. And the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive, and I will set the desert, I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see 
and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is where we'll end with God's Word. The reading of God's Word. Dear congregation, for the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, the prophet has proclaimed that judgment is coming. Babylon is coming. And exile will be the fate of all of the wicked in Israel. But just a few verses earlier than our Scripture reading this morning in chapter 38, when a Babylon envoy comes all the way from Babylon to scout the land and to see the wealth of Israel, rather than heeding the, uh, the prophet and God's word that exile was coming, Hezekiah welcomes the envoy into Jerusalem and gives them a tour of the royal palace and shows off his wealth. Israel is said to repeatedly scorn God's law. They repeatedly didn't listen to the prophets, as church history says, even to the point of putting Isaiah to death. If we are to look at the first half of the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, and we were to summarize it in one word, it would be this. Judgment. From the beginning of the book, if you just flip to Isaiah chapter 1, we see this already at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 2, speaking of Israel, says, they have rebelled against Me. Verse 4, ah, a sinful nation, the offspring of evildoers, Children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord and despised the Holy One of Israel. And so the prophet, by the inspiration of God, over and over again reminds them, repent! Judgment is going to come upon you. God is going to judge the whole nation through Babylonian exile. If you remember back to your church or your ancient world history classes, you'll be reminded that Babylon was the ancient superpower of the world at that time. And so this prophecy that Babylon is coming would have filled the people of Israel with great dread. If Babylon was in fact coming, there is nothing they could do to stop it. Maybe it's a bad analogy, but it would be like if Canada was invaded by the United States. There isn't much we could do. I say we because I'm Canadian, of course. The righteous God-fearers at that time in Israel would have wondered if Babylon is coming, if exile is coming, how does God feel towards us? You could imagine the person who's tried to follow God's law, who's believed upon the Messiah to come in faith, the one who is seeking to obey God would wonder as they sit under Isaiah's preaching, Pastor, has God forgotten us? 
But in chapters 40 through 66, which we call the second half of Isaiah, we see a remarkable shift in Isaiah's preaching. We see there's a shift in his form, his tone, and his message changes from judgment, judgment, to in verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 1, it changes to comfort, comfort, my people. In chapter 39, the message of disaster is spoken, but in the chapter 40 and the rest of the book, it's a message of comfort. It's a message of consolation. It's a message of salvation being proclaimed. And what God tells His faithful people, that even though judgment is coming, even though Babylon is going to be knocking on the door of Israel very shortly, that God's people do not need to fear His judgment. Because He controls history. And that's our theme this morning. God's people need not fear judgment, for He controls history. I want to show you that in two points. We want to see the inability of idol gods in verses 1-7, through and the ability of Israel's God in verses 8-20. through That's the inability of idol gods and the ability of Israel's gods. So let's look at Isaiah 41, verse 1. God says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Here in verse 1, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is throwing down the gauntlet, so to speak. He is challenging the idol gods to enter into debate with Him. The picture that we're given in the first seven verses of Isaiah 41 is a courtroom analogy. So you need to imagine this morning the wooden floors, the jury bench, the prosecutor's table, and sitting on the judge's bench is Yahweh the Lord of hosts. And He is calling the coastlands, it says. That would have been the nations upon the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. He's calling them to come. Come into My presence and defend yourself. Defend their faith in their idol gods. This would have been a fearsome scene to say the least when we realize especially that, when, that Jehovah is not only judge, but He is also plaintiff. He is the injured party. He is the lawyer. He is the Creator. God is, if you will, the judge, jury, and executioner in this courtroom. And God is calling the nations to give an account. And so He asks this question in verse 2. If you look at verse 2, He says, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? This reference to the east refers to the fact that from the east was coming a new political superpower that was rising up that was going to challenge the Babylonians on the world stage. 
The Lord reveals later in chapter 44 that this one from the east, this new superpower, would be Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, Cyrus would have had a, or did have, I should say, a meteoric rise to the superpower of the ancient world. He was crowned as the, of the king of Persia in five, uh, 558 B.C. And only eight years later, he would rebel against his Median lords. He would conquer their capital. But his path to the world, what's interesting about Cyrus is that his path to the top of the world, to being the most influential and powerful man in the ancient world, actually came with very little bloodshed. He became an heir in Medea because there was discontent in the nation with their leaders. And this brought many people under his rule with very little struggle. You see, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 41, they describe a king whose his armies can turn his enemies into dust. With his army, he can turn them into stubble. But in verse 3, it says he gains not territory by power. He doesn't gain territory by his armies. No, he gains new territory by peace. The Hebrew word, the word I'm sure you're all familiar with, is he gains his territory by shalom. The question being put to the idol gods in this courtroom is this. What is the power? What is the inspiration behind Cyrus? What gives him the magic? Put it another way, who is the Lord of history? You know, I wonder this morning how Israel would have responded to this prophecy. At this point, they have not yet been exiled into Babylonian captivity. Uh, the, Cyrus isn't even mentioned. This, at this point, this is an unknown person who is going to be coming from the east. And as Isaiah goes on through this book, eventually Cyrus will be revealed. And So we learn then, if we're Israel, not only is Babylon coming, but now Cyrus is coming. Persia is coming as well. They were exiled. Israel ended up being exiled in 597 B.C. But this thought is quite shocking. Not only is one superpower coming to exile us, to go to war with our nation, but now a second superpower. A second almighty, strongest nation on earth is coming for our land. I think if we were in the sandals of the people of uh, Israel at that time, this would really seem to all but evaporate God's previous proclamation of comfort, wouldn't it? If we heard, not only is the strongest nation in the world going to war with us, but the next strongest nation after will come to war with us too, comfort, comfort doesn't really feel like comfort, comfort. Comfort, comfort sounds more like anxiety, anxiety. Stress, stress. Pain, pain. 
If we're honest with ourselves, this prophecy doesn't feel like comfort. It feels more like dread. It feels more like fear. of Hopelessness. Look at verse 4. Yahweh says again, Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. Who is the originator of all things? Who is the one who is working through human history? He says, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. This is the central claim of God's comfort. Jehovah claims in the presence of all of the nations, in the presence of all of the idols, that He is sovereign. That's comfort. That's peace. In the midst of anxiety. In the midst of dread and fear. Because He says, I have divine control over all things. That is, that God is working in and through all things to, comp- to accomplish His God-glorifying, church-saving, Christ-centered purposes. God is telling Israel through the prophet Isaiah that Cyrus will not come to Israel by His own will, but it's the Lord who has raised Him up It's the Lord who's given him his army. It's the Lord who's given him peace in his conquest. And it's the Lord who will bring him to the borders of Israel. We'll see why this gives us peace later in the second point. But God is making a claim here this morning to His people Israel many thousands of years ago I am sovereign. This was what gave them comfort. And brothers and sisters, doesn't the church need this message today? It was only 40-ish days ago that the world watched in shock as Russia invaded the Ukraine. For the first time since World War II, Europe is experiencing war And it has put us in a tailspin. It has shattered our peace. Our shalom. Yet God's claim of sovereignty is not only pertaining to Israel. It doesn't just extend to Israel, but it extends to the Ukraine and extends to Europe, even here in North America, as much as it does to Israel. Let us be clear here this morning that no war surprises God. No war takes place without His permission. He is claiming this morning, I am the God of all history. Notice in verse 4, what does He say? He uses that word call. Call is used in the sense that God has called something into being. Put pointedly, God is ordained from the first before anything that comes to pass that Cyrus would come to Israel. Before anything was, God had ordained all. Not only this, 
but he says, I'm the first, but I am also the last. Jesus claims this as well in Revelation 1 when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letter of the, the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I'm the first and the last. But what do these claims mean? God in, in Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, Christ in the book of Revelation, are stressing not only that He is the beginning and the end of history, but by His presence, He is in and throughout all of the events in between the beginning and the end of history. All events that take place in our life, whether they be as small as something insignificant in our daily life, to something as large, and there may not be anything larger than a national full-scale war. All of these things are marching towards what God has ordained to take place in human history. He is ordained, as the Apostle Paul said, that all things will work together for good and for those who are called according to His purposes. He can work even through the wickedness of men even through the trials of war and the bloodshed and the horrible things that go on on this earth, God can work in and through them to accomplish His good purposes. That's what gives us comfort. That's what gives us hope. Look at how the nations respond as well. Actually, notice how the gods respond. Here they are, sitting before the Lord, And what do the gods say in response? Crickets. Nothing. But the peoples of the earth hear Yahweh's claim. And rather than throwing themselves on the mercy of God, they bind themselves together. What do they do? They try to make better idols. The text says, soldering and nails are added to their gods so that it cannot be moved. Or as the King James Version says, that it may not totter. The nations would rather trust an idol that can blow over in the wind than the God who claims to rule world history. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to consider this morning the question for ourselves, who controls the world. Who's in charge of not only this church, but the United States, North America, the whole globe? Who controls history? I want to suggest to you this morning that if you believe history is ruled by kings, by presidents, or by chance, you don't have any cause for hope if the world is ruled by chance and through men try to order chance, that means all of the suffering, the hardship, and the trials that we endure in this life are meaningless. Because they would serve no purpose. But if God is before and after and working in all things, we can have hope that our trials are not meaningless but they are working towards a singular purpose. That purpose being our good in Jesus Christ. Paul, again, just to reiterate, says these words, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
and for those who are called according to his purposes. Christian, here this morning, your God is sovereign. Take heart. The trials that we endure are not for nothing. God is working even in the trials we endure here today to accomplish His God-glorifying, church-saving, Christ-centered purposes. Now, we also feel a little bit of a separation of time as we look at the first few verses in Isaiah chapter 41. Man and the modern man and the modern woman no longer bow down to blocks of wood or truss in hunks of metal in order to find comfort. But yet we know even today we're still tempted to idolatry. Idolatry is defined as trusting in anything alongside of or in the place of God. When we put all of our comfort, when we put all of our trust in something other than the Lord. But there are things that our society, our world bends the knee to and bows down to. Principally, what we bow the knee to these days is we bow the knee to science or knowledge. The Bible of the modern idolatry is written by Freud or Einstein or Hawkins or even, not to trigger you, but maybe even Fauci. We need to be clear this morning that Science and medicine and law and human knowledge are all good things that are given to us by God, but we should not trust science. We should not trust law or things observable for our comfort, for our hope. Because science is based on things observable, it cannot speak. It cannot speak with authority on that which it doesn't observe. And when people question whether science is true or the popular claims of science, our culture tries to strengthen it by saying, if only we had more resources. If only we had more people who believed. Or other things of that nature. This is the same thing that we see in Isaiah 41. Strengthen them with nails. Strengthen it with soldering. Smooth it over with metal. But look at what the Lord is saying here to you this morning, not just to the idol worshipers of the ancient world. He's saying, whatever you trust in, more than me, or in the place of me, is sin whether it's a block of wood or an idol fashioned out of gold, we may not look to anyone to trust in anything man-made. We need to trust in the Lord. For He is the One who has been before all things. He will be after all things. And He is working in all things to accomplish His purposes. So let's turn then to our second point. Let's look at verses 8 through 20, the ability of Israel's God. So Isaiah's message to Israel this morning is that you can trust the promises of God. He will not totter, he will not fall over like an idol God or a golden image. 
He is not fallible. That means He will not make errors. He will not be wrong like our modern gods of science or humanism. You see, idols don't offer any real hope. They don't offer any comfort or protection. But what God is saying in these last few verses is that I can protect you and preserve you. He does this. God shows us this. He gives us three parables, if you will. He gives us three pictures of how He cares for His people. The first picture we see beginning in verse 8 is the picture of the victorious servant, we'll call it. He says you're different than the idol worshipers. You see that in verse 8. He says, but you. He's defined the idol worshipers, but now He's defining you this morning. The but emphasizes that they are different. But why they are different is because God has chosen them. He's chosen them through Abraham and through Jacob to be His servants. Now sometimes we think of that word, that term uh, servant, we think of it in a negative term. But in verse 8, we should probably interpret it as a term of endearment. God has chosen those people in Israel just as He has chosen Abraham. Just as He chose Moses and David. This is a call for them to remember that they have a history of God being God's chosen people as a nation. God chose Abraham from the ends of the earth to Canaan. He was with them in Egypt and God brought them out of slavery. He can do it again. The exile that they're going to experience in Babylon does not change God's relation to them. He will not leave them or forsake them. They were chosen by God. And we have this beautiful promise. The center of God's promise here in verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Here in this promise, we receive three words of comfort. He says, I am with you. That's His presence will be there. He says, be not dismayed. I am your God. He reminds them of His covenant faithfulness. He says, I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. He will help His people. He will not leave them in destitution. Martin Luther said this, to comfort a despondent that's a downcast spirit is as difficult to raise the dead. Close quote. But brothers and sisters, do we not have a God who can raise the dead? Who can lift people out of despair? And the main point of verses 8-20 through is that Jehovah wants to dispel their fear. He wants to comfort them in the trial. Twice they are told to fear not. He says, I am with you. He is not far off. He is not disinterested. He is near and caring to His people. 
He says, I am your God. Reminding them that He has marked them with circumcision. And that He has promised them by way of covenant that they will experience salvation through Him. He says, I will hold your right hand. That is, He will help them. He will strengthen Him. He will give them what they need. You know, if we take verse 10 and verse 13, we get this beautiful picture if we take them together. Verse 13 says, I, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Here we receive a powerful picture of a parent and a child. In the father's right hand is a mighty weapon to fend off any enemies that may come to harm his children. And in his left hand, he is holding the child's right and leading them to safety. He doesn't merely stand to defend, but He is also with the child. Our God teaches us that He will not allow His children to be separated from Him. You know, in all the Reformers, we say, Amen. Let us, but let us never forget this morning whom God has chosen us in. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were not chosen because we were mighty. Israel was not chosen because they were rich in strength. They were chosen because God set His love and affection upon them, having nothing to do with themselves in order to be God's servants, in order to be God's chosen children, We needed God's own Son. We needed the suffering servant to be with us. But these servants in Isaiah 41 are described as having victory in the Lord. And so do we have victory in Christ. It's in the light of the cross that we triumph over our enemies. We do not triumph over them by sword or by weapon but they shall be as nothing before the justice and power of God. And He shall welcome His children into His rest in Christ. These verses teach us where comfort comes from. Sometimes if we have a bad day at work or we have a a challenging time with our spouses or with our children, we want to seek comfort in the world. want to flick on the TV and drink a couple beers or something like that. I want to go out with my friends. I want to do whatever it might be, but look at what Jesus or look at what the Father is telling us through verse 10. Comfort comes. Peace is given to his people in Christ. It's given to us in God's presence, his covenant and his help. We won't receive comfort by turning to sin. We won't receive comfort by turning to the world. We God cries out unto us, comfort comfort in the Lord. You know, the next word picture we're given is in verses 14 and 16. We get this interesting story of a transformation. It says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. For I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you, here we see the transformation, a threshing sledge 
new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You see, in the soon coming exile, Babylon would overthrow, or in the soon coming exile, and then the overthrowing of Babylon by Persia, Israel would have been sort of the little guy on the block. He would have been the small player in this fight. But they need to fear not because God is going to transform them from something small and insignificant to something mighty and something dominant. According to Israel's own strength, look at how God defines them. It's really flattering. You worm. This is referring to Israel's helplessness. Their lowliness in exile. What can a worm do against a man? Nothing. But notice, even in their weakness, the second or the first part of verse 14, they are to fear not. It is as if. God has said, He does say in chapter 40, He says, you are like grass. You are like wildflowers. But even though you are helpless and and full of weakness, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Yahweh tells them that in His presence, Israel shall be to their oppressors a threshing sledge. Now when I was assigned this passage in school, I was really, I didn't even know what a threshing sledge was. Uh, Apparently in the ancient world, they would take a wooden board and they would put nails through it so that it's sticking through the board and they would attach it to an ox or, or a horse and it would drag that wooden board with the nails through it over the grain or the wheats and it would separate the kernel from the chaff. What God is saying to them is that I will transform you into something that is weak and helpless, into something that is strong and something that is dominant. They will thresh their enemies. They will be transformed into instruments so powerful, the Lord says in verse 15, you shall be so strong you can thresh the mountains and crush them. You can make the hills like chaff, God is even able to make the weakest into the strongest. It is here, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that the Gospel of God shines most brightly. God has not chosen the mighty. God has not chosen the wise. He has not chosen the weak. But He's chosen the foolish. He's chosen the poor. He's chosen them in Christ. And through that choice in Christ, God can make us from something that's weak into something that's strong. And so much so that the Apostle Paul says, behold, the old has died in its sinful ways, but the new has come. And in Christ, we have life and power and strength to be able to defeat sin. To be able to defeat the devil and even one day in that blessed resurrection, even death itself will be defeated. And the third and the final picture is that God will provide for weary 
travelers. This demonstrates God's bountiful provision. This scene in verses 17-20 through describes people who would have been traveling through an arid, dusty desert. Their lips are cracked. Their throats are parched. And in their desperation, they cry out to God. And He hears them. Beloved, our God listens to the prayers of His people. There's no saint who goes unnoticed in God's kingdom. No one slips into death apart from His knowledge. Here, even the weary traveler, whom everyone else has forgotten about, there's no search party looking for them. They're about to drop dead in the desert wilderness and nobody will remember or know where they are. And look at what God says. I will not forsake even those who are lost to the world. I will not forsake those who are forgotten by men. God hears their cry and provides for their needs. He says, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together. This describes a rich, overflowing provision beyond what they needed. All they would have needed is a, a little shade and a bottle of water. And what, provide, what God provides is a barren wilderness being transformed. Water rushing down from the bare heights. Watering the sun-parched land. Trees are springing up. None of these trees even mentioned in verses 18-19 through 19, are fruit-bearing trees. They're included in God's provision only to provide shade for weary wanderers. The point is, God richly, overabundantly, in excess, can provide for His people. And brothers and sisters, has not God also richly provided for us in Christ? Extreme thirst is a common metaphor for spiritual distress in the Bible. We, we often sing that song, right? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for You, O God. See, this passage speaks not only to their physical needs which they need to provide it for, but it speaks to the spiritual needs. They cry out to God for spiritual provision and God overwhelmingly meets what they need. In Christ, there is more grace and mercy than there is sin in us. There is no one too far gone. There is no crime so foul, no man or woman so broken that the long arm of Christ cannot redeem them. He provides in His Son all the grace, all the spiritual strength, that we need. The point of the pictures, all three of them, that God gives Israel is simply this. You don't need to fear. For I am with you. I'm not going to forsake you. You are My people. You don't need to fear Babylon's exile. You don't even need to fear Cyrus's overthrowing of Babylon. 
because I am in control of history and I am looking out for you. He will work all things for their good. Even this exile will work for their good. You might ask, well, how can God make war, destruction, and exile work for their good? Just flip two chapters over to Isaiah 43, verse 5, where God says this. Again, He says, fear not. I am with you. I will bring your offspring from where? The east. And from the west, I will gather you. What is the Lord saying here about Cyrus in verse 40, chapter 41? He's saying Babylon will be the instrument of your judgment, but Cyrus is going to be the instrument of your salvation. Through all their exile, God will be with you. He will provide, and then He will provide through Cyrus a way to return home. He will provide through him a way to rebuild the temple, a way to wait in expectation for the the Messiah. He will not forsake them. Let us never forget as well that salvation does not come apart from judgment. As if God looks the other way, but through judgment. God's people in Israel experienced exile, faithful and unjust alike. But God's mercy was that He would send one who would lead them not away from God's judgment, but through God's judgment. Cyrus, in many ways, shows us a a picture or a shadow of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus does not take us away from God's judgment, but He enters into God's judgment. And through Him taking our place, He sets the captives free. That we might worship and dwell in God's presence even here today. Even us here this morning do not go to heaven apart from judgment. But Christ bore it for us. He sets the captives free that we might dwell with God forever. God had appointed Christ to come at the right time. And all things worked towards that end. Therefore, God's children should not fear judgment. Because God has provided unto us a mediator who will give who will bring salvation. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded this morning in in conclusion that God is concerned with the fears of His people. And so He provides for us a remedy. He gives you a promise that He will be with you. We need to be a people who drink deeply at the fountain of His presence. His nearness is what strengthens us. His covenant is what calms our fears and anxiety and his help is what gets us through each day god can protect and preserve you but i want to ask you this question before we close what is it that comforts you when you're offended when you're tired when you're hurt what brings you comfort 
The Lord in the trial of the idol God says, none of these other idols can bring comfort, only judgment. But it is I who say to you, comfort, comfort. It's the Lord who brings peace as we trust in Him. So who controls the world's history? The only one who controls the world's history is the one who is before all things, who is after all things, and in all things. God has always been with His people. He will never leave or forsake His people. Do we then need to fear tribulation, persecution, or sword? No. If God is for us in Christ, then He has promised that He will work all things for the good of His people. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, You are good. And You have proclaimed unto us comfort, comfort. And this inheritance is ours only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Heavenly Father, that You would give us this comfort in our Lord. That we would deny the idols of this world and the things that promise comfort that only bring turmoil and frustration. By Your Spirit, may our eyes be cast upon Him. And may we know not only in theory, but also in practice, the comfort of Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.